You are listening to Episode 1 of Captain's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 1. Diurnia Orbital. 2371, August 22nd. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. However, a man of good fortune, in the company of a wife, may find himself questioning that truth, or at least its universality. It was with those dark thoughts and dire portents that I collected my kit, gathered my fortitude, and prepared to get underway once more. Ishmael? She began with a wheedle in her voice. When are you going to stop this gallivanting around the quadrant and actually get a real job and settle down? It wasn't the first time she'd asked me that question. Every time she did, it was like a fresh cut. Every time there was a synaptic gridlock in my brain which my mouth couldn't overcome. That was probably just as well, since all the things I could think of later were mostly negative and not terribly helpful. Jen, I began, but there was nothing behind it. I only shook my head in silence. Jen what? she said. You've nothing to say. You knew what I was when you married me. It was feeble, but all I could bring together. Ishmael, dear, she was pushing it hard, and I braced for it. That was what? Seven stanniers ago? You're still doing the same job for the same company, and you're never at home. She was right about the time, and the company. I made it up to first. It's not like the same job I started with. She made a little psh noise with her lips. You're still sailing off for months at a time, and I get to see you a few days when you're here and you're off again. It's my job, Jen. It's what I do. I could hear the defensive whine in my own voice, but there wasn't anything I could do about it. She shifted gears on me, maybe smelling the weakness, and turned hard. So why did we get married? Huh? Just so you have a cheap place to stay in port? Did you think we'd go on like this, you going out there and flying around, me back here pulling pints and slopping burgers? I looked around our little crew quarters. Station living arrangements are a bit on the close side, not as close as shipboard, but certainly not as spacious as living planet side. Well, I've told you repeatedly that living up here is entirely up to you. If you want to live below, then go ahead. I recognized this as a dodge, and she didn't even bother to try to block it. And do what? Find a job down there, she demanded. I don't know. What do you want to do? I asked. Well, I'd like to live with my husband. She bit the words off. My tablet bipped to remind me I needed to be aboard, and I grabbed my kit bag and looked to see where she was sitting at the dinette table, arms crossed over her stomach and glower on her face. I'll see you in a few weeks. The door didn't close fast enough behind me to block off her response. Bastard. Every time it was the same. Every time my brain locked down. Every time it got ugly. And every time I knew she was right, but I had no answer. Why did we get married? The cold bite of dock air snapped my head up out of my funk, and I started thinking about what had to happen in order to get underway on schedule by 1300. Six stands. Should be enough time, and gods knew I'd done it often enough over the stanniers. Still, each time we pushed back, there was a chance we'd not dock again. 
Each time was new in a way that made everything else somehow less. I sighed and stepped smartly down the dock. First mates didn't linger, even married ones. Stepping aboard the tinker, I could feel the station and all the things associated with it slough off, as if the closing lock severed the ties. It's not that they went away. It was just that they ceased to hold sway. There was nothing I could do about them while underway, and even though the ship was still docked, mentally I was already moving toward Breakall. I smiled to see Abel Spacer D'Agostino on the brow. How are you holding up on brow watch, Miss D'Agostino? Welcome aboard, sir. Just fine. It is as boring as they say, but at least I'm the one calling the messengers. She grinned broadly at me. It was a standing point of contention on the brow. Messengers of the watch thought that watchstanders had it easy until they got promoted to the post themselves and realized just how deadly sitting there for twelve stands at a time really was. I chuckled a little to myself, remembering my first brow watch. Yes, well, just remember the little people in your meteoric rise to fame and power, Miss D'Agostino. She laughed in reply. I sir, but I'm pretty sure meteors don't rise, sir. They fall. That's what makes them meteors and not asteroids. Makes you wonder where the phrase came from, doesn't it, Miss D'Agostino? Yes, sir, it surely does, but I'll leave such idle speculation to my betters and superiors, sir. She was grinning at me, and I confess a little stab of very immodest pride in thinking that when I'd first joined the Tinker's crew over a decade before, that grin wouldn't have been there. Of course, D'Agostino herself wouldn't have been there. She couldn't have been more than twenty-five. That sobering thought punctured my small bubble of hubris and left me feeling old. I kicked myself mentally. Thirty-eight was not old, and although sometimes I felt it, I wondered idly how old I'd feel at sixty-eight. Thank you for your kindness to your elders, Miss D'Agostino. I'll make a mark on your record in the plus column. Oh, thank you, sir, she said, with a small smile as she registered my current mass allotment. It was another standing joke among the crew. While the tinker did have records on all the crew, every ship was required to keep good records, there was no plus or minus tally. While it seemed like it might be a good idea to some, the reality was that one serious minus, and nobody's tally would mean much. Good behavior wasn't a luxury in the deep dark. It was a survival trait, and often the unit of interest was the ship, not just an individual crew member. I started down the passage to drop off my kit when she stopped me. Captain's compliments, sir, and would you join her in the cabin when you've stowed your bag? I turned to look, and she was looking at the brow's terminal. The skipper must have seen me check in and sent a summons. She was a stickler for form, our Freddy, and I loved her for it. Of course, Miss D'Agostino. My regards to the captain, and I'll be with her in three ticks. You do know you two could talk to each other directly on your tablets, don't you, sir? She asked after hitting the acknowledge and reply button. She looked up at me with her cheeky grin restored. Why, Miss D'Agostino, you come up with the strangest ideas at times. I could hear her chuckling as I rounded the corner, the end of the passage, and started toward the ladder up to officer country. Of course we knew, and we did, often. But there were times that the captain wanted the crew to know that she and the first mate were always working from a common understanding, and that understanding grew from a frequent and widely noised series of meetings. Frederica de Groot was no slouch when it came to managing the ship, and I only hoped I had half her skill and panache when it came to be my time to sit in the cabin. 
It was only the work of a moment to drop my kit under my locker and knock on the captain's doorframe, since Freddy had it propped open. Good morning, Captain. She smiled up at me from her seat at the small conference table. Hello, Ishmael. Come in and close that door behind you, if you would. I didn't read too much into the request to close the door. After nearly ten standards of sailing with this woman, I'd learned more than a few things. This was one of them. I'd come to the conclusion that she did it randomly so that the crew didn't jump to conclusions about the nature of the conversations occurring within. Sometimes they were serious. Sometimes Freddy just wanted to talk about the little nothings that are really the everythings aboard a solar clipper while underway. She was in the habit of keeping the door open when in the cabin alone, unless she was asleep or trying to write reports. She liked feeling the flow of the ship, she told me once. But that left the issue of when to close the door when something serious was happening, and how to do it without telegraphing it to the crew. Her solution was to randomly close the door when in conference, or at least so I imagined. I never did ask her about it. She poured me a coffee from the carafe on the table as I took my accustomed seat at her right hand. I could feel her looking at me in that intense bird-like way she has. At nearly seventy, she was just reaching what was late middle age for spacers. Her hair was cropped like the rest of us, but carried a gunmetal sheen, and I was surprised by how much more pronounced her laugh lines were than when I remembered her from my first days aboard and she was the cargo officer. But she wasn't laughing. I glanced her way over the rim of my cup while she studied me. She wasn't laughing, but she wasn't angry either. She looked sad. So why did you get married, Ishmael? she asked, breaking the silence after three full ticks. My look must have showed my surprise, but she smiled, not unkindly, at my shocked look. Don't be surprised. She patted my forearm comfortingly. I've known you for ten stanyers, Ishmael. I've seen you grow from a startling precocious boot third to a terrifyingly competent first mate. I'm not comfortable with compliments, and I started to demure, but she stopped me with a tsk and a sharp pat on the arm. Don't interrupt your captain, it's bad manners. She said it with a grin and a twinkle in her eye. She settled back into her chair, cradling her cup in both hands just below her chin. As I was saying, I've known you for ten stanyers, and for the last five of those, you've been coming back to the ship like a whipped dog every time we're in home port. She had me. I leaned forward on the table and stared down into my cup. That obvious? She wrinkled her nose a little and gave a little shake of her head. Not obvious. You mask it well, but I recognize the signs. The bitterness in that last statement took me by surprise a bit. Voice of experience? She made a non-committal nod and shrug. Something like that. Then she sipped her coffee and waited, her sharp eyes watching me over the rim of her mug. I don't know, I told her. It wasn't much of an answer, but it was real. She chuckled. It seemed like the thing to do at the time. She let the statement trickle off at the end. I shrugged. Yeah, well, at the time it seemed like that was what grown-ups did. Got married, settled down, had kids. It seemed like it was something I was supposed to do. I'd known Jen for a couple of years, and we always hit it off like gangbusters when I was in port. So you got married, but you didn't settle down. She prompted me after half a tick. Well, I did, really, I protested. Really? She asked with that snarky little lilt at the end. Well, felt like it. 
I could have taken other jobs, gone to other companies, and it's not like there aren't plenty of opportunities for... I stopped cold, realizing where that statement was going. Advancement, she suggested with a smirk. Yes, okay, advancement. We both knew that wasn't what I was talking about, but she also knew I wasn't tomcatting around. Some officers may have had a lover in every port, but I wasn't one of them. Not that I wasn't tempted often enough, but I just didn't. We sipped for a few ticks, but I knew she wasn't done with me. So you think you've settled down, but Jen thinks you're still a spacer, and you'll never settle down because what you mean by settle down and what she means by settle down aren't even in the same system. All I could do was sigh and nod dumbly. She gave a little sideways nod and a kindly smile. So the question of why you got married isn't really important, is it? I gave my head a shake. No, it's not. The question is how am I going to deal with it now? Good. She said it a bit sadly and with a small sigh. I was afraid I was going to have to explain it to you. I realized that I'd known that for a long time. Admitting it didn't make it any easier. Might be the first step to solving the problem, but it still looked like a long road ahead. She didn't let me stew on it, though. We both knew there'd be plenty of opportunity for stewing in the long voyage to break all and back. Good, she said again, more forcefully. And her tone shifted to business, and we started tracking through the thousand and one details that we needed to cover before the crew reported aboard, and the ship pulled out from the orbital. Chapter 2. Break All System, 2371, September 24th. The jump into break all wasn't exceptional. Ms. Bear hit the Burleson limit dead on and we slipped in without a hiccup. The ship secured from navigation stations just before the watch change at 0600 and first section took the duty. Since I was the OD for first section, that meant I got to settle in with a fresh cup of coffee and the messenger of the watch brought me a tray from the galley for breakfast. It's funny how old habits die so hard. Almost eight stanyers since I'd been systems officer, but I still reviewed the logs of incoming traffic when I was on watch. Not like being first officer didn't have its own load to haul, but part of that load was making sure the ship stayed safe, and in the deep dark, extra eyes sometimes meant living to get to port. That's how I happened to spot the HasNav notice and the incoming traffic queue. We got a fresh load of data at each jump, picking up a packet from wherever we'd been and dropping it wherever we were going. A few light days out from the primary, the date on the buoy was usually pretty fresh, and it would only get fresher as we moved inward. Usually the incoming packet was nothing to beam home about. Some limited price and cargo data, some news, mostly political. Sports scores. We had to have the sports scores. I suspected the betting pool and engineering berthing was tapping the feed directly, but as long as the wagering was fair, there wasn't any reason for me to bigfoot it. This particular packet was flagged with high priority, and that wasn't usual. Our current third mate, a very competent and slightly crazy individual named Juliana Kazyanenko, scampered up the ladder to the bridge even as the packet was finishing its load-up. She grinned at me as she slipped into the systems console. Are you reading my mail again, Ishmael? That's Mr. Wang to you when I'm on duty, Ms. Kazyanenko. I tried to growl and look fierce. And who are you when you're to home, then? She shot back. She wasn't really paying attention to me. She was an excellent systems and comms officer, and she had her mind in the machine, even if her head was still attached to her shoulders. 
Mark Clemming was on the helm, and he was staring blandly straight ahead. I could just see his face from where I was looking across the bridge to where Kaz was ripping the data packet apart to extract the HasNav notice. So you were reading my mail. She grinned while she was saying it, and she really wasn't with us on the bridge. Her attention was still riveted on the message traffic. It's not far from our track. I already keyed the course plot into the big display above my own station and saw we'd be moving within a few thousand kilometers of the hazard. That was unusual enough that I sent a copy to the skipper and another to the astrogator. HasNav. Hazard to navigation notices. They weren't that unusual. They're part of doing business in the deep dark. Sometimes things get a little cosmic out there and ships need to know about the odd rock, the extra stellar ejector, or drop baggage... Some things are just part of the equations, stuff you don't think about because the systems all deal with it routinely. Between the shielding afforded by the sails and the simple expedient of steering around them, most HasNav notices ranked up there with avoiding planets and missing moons and generally not being stupid while navigating a cargo hauler. This HasNav notice was different, and we both saw it at the same time. The location and course of the hazard is coded in the header, but the specific nature of the hazard is usually buried in the comment notes. Kaz and I both saw the comment at the same time. She swore. I bipped to Captain. This wasn't the normal stray rock or lost bag. It was a ship. The captain bounded up the ladder to the bridge, and I leaned back to give her a look at my screen. What do we have here, Mr. Wang? She stood and looked out the bridge windows as if trying to see it, although we were still two or three days out. Hasnav warning came through a few ticks ago, Captain. Ship is running ballistic and apparently abandoned. We can't be the first ones through here. Any indication of who it is and how long she's been there? I looked to Kaz, who shook her head. Not much in the Hasnav record, Captain. Hall reported by the Billy Battings, a tractor out of Gamblin, four days ago. Derelict is the Chernyakova. It's a barbell like us, out of Greenfield, but no notes on the circumstances of that report. Freddy looked thoughtful, crossing her arms over her chest and pulling at her lower lip with her fingers as she stared off in the direction of the derelict. Greenfield is a bit out of the way, don't you think, Miss Kazianenko? Kaz looked at the tank that held a three-dimensional representation of the sector. A few clicks on her keyboard and the display zoomed back. She made a couple more clicks and a system pulsed. We all focused on the display. Kaz pointed it out. She could have been making a circuit. A string of systems looped around from Diurnia, out and down and back and up, like a series of beads on an irregular string. Freddy looked at it for a long moment. That's an awful long trip for a barbell. The Unwin barbell-designed hulls were common in the quadrant. They were basic one-can-designed bulk haulers. They had the advantage of a single cargo pod, the one can, that was completely isolated while underway. The container slipped in between the forward and after nacelles, where it locked against the spine. Once locked into place, the container's loading ports, located on either end, were blocked by the hull holding it. The contents were effectively sealed in a can until that can was delivered to the destination port and unmounted from the ship that carried it. Of course, they also had the liability of not being able to get underway without a can, because the stresses on an unreinforced spine would separate the navigational systems in the bow from the propulsion generators in the stern. 
the can itself provided much-needed stability to the backbone by locking the fore and aft nacelles tightly against itself. With no can, the ship was basically two bricks on a straw. Ms. Kazyanenko, please plot rendezvous course with Chernyakova. See what that does to our transit time to break hall orbital, if you please. Aye, aye, Captain. I'll have the breakdown for you in a couple of ticks. Thank you, Ms. Kazyanenko. Captain turned to me and asked, Any ideas? Anything I've got is speculation, Skipper. She grinned. Yes, Mr. Huang, it's what I'd like to hear. Your speculations on what might be out there. The can is the weakness. I sent it with a shrug. If she's lost her can, there's not much else to do. Why didn't the battings tow her? Maybe she was full up, I suggested. Although an unloaded barbell isn't that much of a load for a tractor like that. Unless she wasn't unloaded, the captain suggested. True, but if the can's still there, why abandon her? And why isn't the place swarming with salvage operators looking to cash in on salvage rights? Her smile turned a bit shark-like at that, and a sharp little twinkle lit her eyes. Maybe we just haven't arrived yet. Chapter 3. Break All System. 2371. September 27th. It took us three days to close the gap on the derelict freighter. Kaz used the time to find out what there was to know about the ship and the crew. It wasn't much. The billy battings had come across it, drifting on a ballistic course more or less stable, but without sails or keel extended. The billy had a full load, and judging from the rather terse statements from their captain, perhaps a bit more than they should have had, so going alongside or even doing much more than taking evasive action was beyond the tractor's capability to accomplish. The reports were spare, but the bottom line was that the can was still there. There was no sign of the crew and no response to hailing. We went to navigation stations just after 0800, and we could see the hull in the distance. We were that close to it. Miss Bear had done a bang-up job of laying our track right alongside theirs, and we were on station about five kilometers behind. How stable is her track, Miss Bear? The captain asked as we stood gazing out the armor glass. Track as stable as ballistic can make it. There's a slight wobble to her, but she's not spinning, and you can see she's laying more or less steady. No pinwheel that I've been able to detect. Any response to hail, Miss Kazyanenko? No, Captain. Only automated signals, and none of those are distress. Just ID beacons and proximity radars. The captain frowned. They have power... She turned to the engineering chief, Amelia Maness, who was running her own scans from the engineering terminal on the far side of the bridge. Mel, anything you can add to this puzzle before we commit any more resources to solving it? She's got power. I'm seeing one hot reactor in her engineering spaces. There should be at least one more, I'd have thought. Chief Maness was thinking out loud for all of us to hear. She didn't look up from her screens, and her voice was coming as if she were far away. No sails, no keel... Heat signatures look normal, mostly. Mostly, the captain asked. Can's a little warmer than I'd have expected. Not much, and it might just be errors in the instrument. It might be something that's in there keeping it half a degree warmer. We'd all seen that happen before as well. The cans were loaded in the cargo terminals. They normally carried only bulk items that wouldn't be damaged by the cold of the deep dark. The cans themselves were a little more than bare metal buckets with hatches on the ends. They were cans in a very literal sense, once sealed. There were some cargoes that didn't do well in that extreme cold, and some cans had a little extra insulation in them and a low-yield heater. 
something just enough to keep a bit of warmth in the can. In the deep dark, refrigeration was seldom a problem. Warmth was. So where's the crew? The captain mused. Life rafts are still in their pod, Skipper, Ms. Bear noted. At least the doors are closed. If they left that way, the pods would be open. I think that was the point where we all got the same rather unsettled thought. It was a thought that I, for one, had been trying not to think. If they hadn't left, then they'd still be aboard. If they were aboard and not answering the hail, not at least flashing a light, something, then the prognosis was grave indeed. Captain took a deep breath and let it out. There's no help for it, I guess. We're going to have to go over and knock on the door. Chief Manus sighed. I hate to do it, but I think you're right. I've got the ship's launch prepped. Ulla's in the pilot chair running the checklist now. Who do you want to send with her, Freddy? Captain scanned the bridge as if she hadn't already made up her mind. Ishmael, sign me on to your watch. I relieve you. Go get into a soft suit and run over there with her. I expected that much. I'd gotten my soft suit qualification when I made first. It meant I could put on the soft fabric going outside for a walk suit and be pretty confident that I'd be able to come back in alive. Going outside wasn't really something that we needed to do a lot as deck officers. The engineering crew had three ratings who were checked out in the engineering hard suits, more armored exoskeleton than suit, and they handled any of the outside work that needed doing, mostly. Sending me in the soft suit meant she wanted me, probably almost literally, to knock on the door. Aye, aye, Captain. You have the watch. I typed a few commands needed to pass over the formal watchstander title to the captain and headed for my stateroom to put on the undersuit that I needed before heading aft to engineering. Half a stand later, Ula Nart eased the ship's launch off the lockdowns and smoothly out of its little pocket of hangar in the aft nacelle. The boat wasn't used much, but when you needed to go short distances in local space, you really did need to have one. It was considered safety equipment in the regs, but it was a very capable small craft. "'What do you think we'll find, Mr. Huang?' Ula asked. She was focused on her flying, and her brain was engaged there, but the stress of flying over to what we all thought was probably a huge tomb had her talking without thinking. "'I'm pretty sure we'll find an Unwin Barbel-class cargo hauler, Miss Nart.' She snorted softly. Judging from the looks, she nodded at the rapidly closing hull. I think you may be right, sir. We were approaching from the stern up the port quarter. I looked out the starboard side of the windshield and tried to get a look at the engines as we slipped past. It was dark back there. The ambient light from Breakall's primary wasn't giving us much help, and the hull was angled away, so it was in shadows on top of it all. It looked okay, but I couldn't really see much. Easy does it, Miss Nart, I cautioned her. I'd like to get a good look at the ship's skin. Easy does it I, sir, she said. She was focused on flying, and that huge hull was just outside the armor glass. We didn't want to get close enough to leave paint or other valuable parts of our launch bruised onto the surface. I didn't really know what I was looking for. I was still trying to figure out how this thing could be happening at all. Twenty billion credits of freighter didn't just fly itself through the deep dark, and they certainly had a lot of safeguards built into them. Why, then, was this great beast doing a very good impression of a modern-day flying Dutchman? Talk to me, Ishmael, the captain's voice came over my suit cone. Nothing to see here, Skipper. Hull is clear. No signs of puncture or fire damage. 
Mostly it's just a canned skin, but there's nothing that stood out in the stern, nothing obvious along what I can see of the spine. Ulla knew her flying business, and we settled into a position with zero delta velocity just outside the Chernyakova's bridge wing. I layered on an optical magnifier and scanned the dark glass. I could just make out the flickering of bridge readouts and displays. I couldn't really see well enough to know what they were showing, but the flicker and glow of their lights was bright enough to show in the shadowy dark of the bridge. Bridge lights are off, but the displays appear to be active, Captain. I can't see what they're displaying, but they're on and displaying something. Any signs of alerts or warnings? Mel's voice sounded calm on the channel. Not that I can see. No red or white strobing lights. Nothing that looks like a flashing screen. And I can see from this angle, anyway. Looks just like a quiet day on the bridge. The captain added. Except with no people? I was looking very closely, trying to see if there was any moving shadows, any shapes moving between me and the light sources inside the bridge. Yes, Captain. Except with no people. Ms. Nart, the captain's voice came over the launch radio. Maneuver onto the top of the bridge and see if you can engage a locking clamp, if you would. Aye, aye, Captain. Ulla bit her lip and moved us ever so gently up and over the bridge. The ship's wobble was apparent from this range, and we couldn't get too close to it without running the risk of a bump. The locking clamp was a sort of magnet that held the launch down to the deck. The bridge wasn't one of the approved strong points, but if Ulla could get a magnet to lock down, we could reel ourselves onto the top of the bridge and then ride the bobble along while locked to the hull. Ulla used the joystick controller to maneuver the locking clamp closer to the ship, but it wasn't quite close enough to engage the bridge roof. She looked at me a little nervously, I thought, and then said, We'll need to be closer, sir. Please check your belt. This could get bumpy. With one hand holding the clamp's joystick, she nudged thrusters with the other, and we slipped another couple of meters closer to the wobbling freighter. It was nerve-wracking, drifting slowly, slowly, slowly down toward the behemoth under us, not really knowing if the hull would suddenly take a bad jink and slam up under our feet. Without warning, the launch dropped two solid meters very fast, and I could almost hear the chunk sound as the locking clamp engaged, and then suddenly... We were riding a bobbing, weaving deck that seemed to almost have a life of its own. Nart retracted the clamp, which had the effect of pulling us down to the hull, and with a delicate touch she fired off two more locking clamps from the middle and stern of the launch. It didn't take long before we were nailed down and riding on the back of the dinosaur. I wasn't sure I could stand up with all the motion on the ship, but after a few steps it became almost second nature. I headed for the launch's little airlock aft, we're locked down, Captain, I told her on my suit comm. I'm heading down to knock on the door. The helmet sealed around my ears and left me breathing too close to my face, but breathing was the point, so I didn't complain. A positive suit pressure test proved that there were no open gaps in my gear, and I started the small personnel lock through its cycle near the back of the launch. No matter how many times I cycled through a vacuum-backed airlock, the effect of having the world go from normal to silent was always a bit disturbing. I could hear my body and the radio and even the small machinery that made up the integrated life support of the soft suit, but outside went from background noise to nothing. The outer door popped open and I felt the small click through the soles of my boots, but I didn't hear a thing. Protocols called for me to pull out a safety line and clip it to the D-ring mounted just outside the airlock. If something happened, they could always reel me in. 
I stepped out and let myself drop gently to the wobbling deck before walking to the back of the ship. I got down on my belly and hoped that the bobbing and weaving that the hull was doing wouldn't throw me off. I leaned down over the edge and took my first direct look into the back of the bridge, upside down and all. I laid there for a few ticks, letting my eyes adjust to the light levels and watching for shadows. One screen on the bridge was solid red. It took me a moment from my upside-down perspective to orient correctly to see which one it was. Environmental. As my eyes adjusted to the view, I could see shapes. One on the deck near the OD station, another at the helm. They weren't moving. Judging from the stains around the shape on the deck, they weren't going to. Captain, I don't think they're going to be opening the door for us. I heard her sigh. Thank you, Mr. Huang. Grab some images and get back here. We'll file a report. Thanks for listening to Captain Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is the Mason's Apron and is used with permission of the artist J.F. Archer. Find this and other works by J.F. Archer at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Dorandas, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. license. For more information on the Golden Age, visit www.solarclipper.com. <laughs> <laughs>